today on Ag News Daily. Chances are you're not getting what the federal order says it's worth, and you're supposed to pay your farmers off the federal order prices. And so that's that's one of the things that this this would accomplish. Listeners, welcome to August 23rd, 2023 edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Farm Smart Podcast. Subscribe now at nutrientagsolutions.com slash farm smart. Let's see if we can have an episode that is as hot as the weather is outside Delaney. I feel like these are bad dad jokes. You're trying to weave in, Tanner. You did this the other day. To- <laughs> it's uh, my only chance because we should cool off next week, but you got to Got to take the extreme heat news while it's available, right? I suppose that's true. The National Weather Service still has the red blob in the middle of the country across most of the U.S. Corn Belt for heat waves. Heat indexes in much of Iowa will reach as high as 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Northern and central Missouri, 105 to 115. Extreme heat remains in effect until Friday. The eastern Oklahoma area still will see heat indexes nearly 120 degrees, leaving their overnight low not to get below 80. But we did see Hurricane Hillary sweep through the southwest, and this was a benefit to the lake levels of Lake Mead. The lake stands at 1,063 feet above the mean sea level, according to the information collected. That is 20 feet higher than where the lake was a year ago. Still four feet below where it was uh, in its peak, but Uh, in 2020, but yet this hurricane is helping fill the reservoir. So there's a little bit of good news that came out of the weather this morning. Well, Tanner, we kicked things off yesterday with the Summit Carbon Pipeline uh, hearings, and they started out on Tuesday with a little bit of fire, not too much, but certainly had some people that were not very happy with this whole Summit Carbon Pipeline had about three different folks testified. A couple farmers, of course, were in that mix. And Tanner, as we look at the path ahead here, they're expecting this these hearings to last for the next six weeks. So spilling over into the month of October. This is actually shorter than what the IUB originally thought that these hearings would last. But still, I was shocked to hear that they were going to last six weeks. And I think that they are happening every not every day, but they're happening very frequently over the next six weeks, Tanner. Yeah, I saw that. It'll be a lot of news that we'll get to recirculate. Yesterday, I reported on the 240 horsepower Can-Am and Polaris in retaliation to the news, put out a new set of patent drawings showing a hybrid side-by-side. The patent drawings show an outwardly pretty normal looking side-by-side, but Polaris is launching its electric side-by-side using zero motorcycle motors in the Ranger XP Kinetic, and then plans to build a hybrid model that combines both electric powertrain and a 1.5 liter triple new Ranger XD 1500. Different layouts for this machine are quite interesting, but we did see those companies go head-to-head for headline capturing. We also saw that Deere and company is likely to hit their fiscal, enter their fiscal year 2024 with low dealer inventories 
positive farm fundamentals and support looking for early order programs to fill up again. The manufacturer of ag and construction equipment stated their recent year earnings report jumped 12% year over year. That is great growth for the company. Production ag sales in Q3 were up 12% to 6.81 billion. Small ag and turf revenue was 3% growth. Deer sees its sales production for precision ag up 20%. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that company, but they seem to have positive projections for the 2024 fiscal year. Well, Tanner, as heat is rolling into the Corn Belt, or I guess not rolling in, it's been here for a little while. It's stagnating in the Corn Belt. But folks in the Pro Farmer Crop Tour are certainly feeling the heat this week as they're out scouting fields. Tanner, we've got day two results from Nebraska and Indiana. And the big headline here is a lot of tar spot was found in Indiana, Tanner. Whether or not that impacts yields is, of course, a big question. But as scouts made their way through eastern Nebraska, the state's extreme to exceptional drought conditions were about 15%. And they said very obvious in the cornfields that they scouted. As we look at estimated yields, they're still coming in, however, relatively high compared to last year. The 2023 Nebraska corn yield estimate based on the scouts findings came in at a 167.2 tanner. When we look at soybeans, they said things were looking pretty good there. Of course, soybeans are also dealing with some heat stress, especially in the eastern portion of Nebraska. Uh, and some non-irrigated soybean fields. But all in all, they're thinking they're going to lose maybe 10 to 12% at a minimum if they don't have rainfall in the month of August, September, as they head into the final stretch here. On the eastern leg in, in uh, excuse me, Indiana, like I mentioned, they saw quite a bit of tar spot as they made their way to Illinois. However, even with that being said, Tanner, estimated yields for the state of Indiana came in at a 180.8, so pretty high yields. Uh, They saw some fields, of course, higher than that, some a little lower, but all in all, pretty strong crop coming out of Indiana. And as far as soybeans go, soybean pod counts looked fairly good, seeing fairly deeply rooted plants, they said in general, on the crop tour, including in the state of Indiana. But with the mid to late May planting date, followed by a June dry spell, they said moisture in Indiana soybean fields are certainly playing out some deficiencies. So may expect to see some lower yields for soybeans there as well. Yeah, it's interesting to watch Twitter as there's lots of conversation about concern on grain fill and kernel depth as this heat and dry spell continues to take place. The newly formed Mosaic Biosciences will be the focus division of the Mosaic Company to bring more biological technologies to the market. Mosaic Biosciences is a natural extension of our strong crop nutrition portfolio, said the Vice President of Strategy. The Mosaic Company is rooted in science and proven in the field. Their portfolio of biological technologies will support the existing biology in plants and soil to deliver healthier and stronger crops. So that is a new headline release there. But Cargill steals a little bit of the news today with the Pixis Ocean. 
that ship is now en route from Singapore to Brazil to pick up grain, and then we'll head toward a destination in Europe. What makes this shipment newsworthy is it's powered by a new technology called wind wings. So uh, hard to say, Delaney, it's a new technology because it's a sail, a technology that has been around for quite a while. These are rigid wind sails that propel the vessel and slash fuel use. The Voyage is the first of its kind testing a wind-assisted propulsion technology which is estimated to reduce fuel by a fifth. The partnership between Cargill and Bar Technologies and Yara Marine Technologies retrofitted the Mitsubishi Corporation's Pixis Ocean with two sails that measure 123 feet in height. So we will see how this maiden voyage is. If it's successful, Cargill aims to add 12 more vessels to be wind-powered to their fleet and hopefully provide 30% fuel savings. Well, Tanner, I've got some fresh news here coming out of Russia, Ukraine, as we've seen a fresh round of drone strikes on when our Tuesday evening there, Wednesday, heading into Wednesday day, Russia drones, Russian drones struck the Ukrainian grain facility on the Danube River at the port of Ismail overnight, according to senior officials. Tanner, this hit does sound like it was a pretty good one for the port there because grain capacity, according to their deputy prime minister, has been reduced by 15%. And they said about 13,000 metric tons of grain have also been destroyed because of this drone strike. Furthermore, we saw the eighth wave of attacks on the Odessa port in the Black Sea region as they're continuing to batter infrastructure there, Tanner. But by all accounts, obviously, Russia is trying to prevent as much grain as possible from getting out of the country. Uh, However, Ukraine still is very adamant that they are going to get another safe passage deal done with maybe Romania and a few other EU countries to be able to get grain out of their borders. Yeah, I was seeing some of that. My last headlines for today, the Russian general who vanished during the Wagner Rebellion has officially been fired from his role. Those drone attacks were not the only drone attacks. Russia said three were killed by Ukrainian drone attacks uh, just over the border of the Belogorod region Wednesday morning. Seems to be a daily occurrence in this region for drone attacks. Uh, We continue to watch. But Ukraine is accusing Russia of dropping guided bombs on a kindergarten and residential buildings, injuring six people, adding to the war crimes that could potentially be punished for. So it's quite interesting. Obviously, grain capacity is hurting in the ports. Nearly 270,000 tons of grain has been destroyed, including not including the capacity for future grain storage. But the last interesting headline I've got for today is India has landed its Shanadrin 3 spacecraft on the moon, becoming only the fourth nation ever to accomplish such a feat. The mission could cement India's status as a global superpower in space. Previously, only the United States, China, and the former Soviet Union had completed sloughed lunar landings. The Shanadrin 3 landing site is closer to the moon's south pole than any other spacecraft in history. The south pole region is considered an area of key scientific and strategic interest for spacefaring nations. So we will continue to watch as scientists believe this might be home to some water ice deposits, which uh, I assume water ice and ice are the same, but the water is frozen in shadowy creators and could be converted into rocket fuel or even drinking water in the future if crewed missions are sent to the moon. 
but that's what I've got for news today. Tanner, I think aside from chat markets, I don't have any other headlines for our listeners today either. So let's dig in here and see where the opening markets are at. Just after the open here, we're seeing corn a little higher on the board. September contract up three and a half cents at 470. These new crop corn trying to claw its way back after some earlier losses this week up three and a half cents at 483. September soybeans down six and a quarter cent at 13.45. New crop beans down a half a cent at 13.45 and a half. Hard red September winter wheat up a penny and three quarters at 7.41 and three quarters. September spring wheat down a penny and a quarter at 7.72 and a half. And Chicago September wheat down a penny and a quarter at $6. Livestock here as we track into the opening session are trading mixed on the board. October live cattle up 55 cents at a buck 79, 12 and a half. September feeders up 32 and a half cents at 249.32. And October lean hogs down 60 cents at 78.97. Tanner, today's conversation, we're flipping things over to the dairy industry to talk about a new potential framework to level the playing field for both dairy farmers and processors. With the Farm Smart Podcast, we're not just talking change, we're making change together. FarmSmart is where sustainability meets opportunity. We're helping growers leverage sustainable practices and products to record positive environmental impacts and provide new revenue streams. Tune in to learn more about sustainable ag and the opportunities and incentives that are enabling us to get to the future faster. Get the FarmSmart podcast on your favorite streaming platform or at NutrientActSolutions.com slash FarmSmart. Well, folks... We're talking to a veteran in the dairy industry today, 42 years of dairy farming, Tom Olson, a West Central Wisconsin dairy farmer, and also part of the Dairy Pricing Association is joining us today to talk about some new framework and legislation for the dairy industry that would hopefully level the playing field for everyone. But Tom, 42 years in the dairy industry, that is quite the accomplishment. Uh, Well, I guess if you... If you really like or love what you're doing, it doesn't seem like you're working all that hard. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a there's a lot of ups and downs and um, stuff, but I grew up with it. Um, as a as a young boy, my I had two uncles at Dairy Farm, and I always spent my summers um, with those guys, and I really really enjoyed it. So, um, what young boy doesn't like? tractors and cows and all the machinery and all the excitement that that goes along with dairy farming. Absolutely. And I'm sure over your 42 years in the dairy industry, you've seen a lot of changes. What do you think has been the biggest change you've seen in your lifetime? Well, I think one of the biggest changes is, you know, the reduction in the number of dairy farms that are currently operating. Um, You know, there used to be manufacturing plants, cheese plants, bottling plants, you know, in in every county or even township. And we've seen such a consolidation in the dairy industry um, from plants being um, merging, co-ops merging, um, private plants being sold to co-ops, things like that. So, you know, the milk moves a lot, lot farther than it used to. the, the farm that I'm on here currently, um, when I was a boy growing up, um, the milk probably went 10 miles to the cheese plant. Um, now it goes 50, um, sometimes farther, depending on where it's needed. 
So, yeah, there's there's a lot of changes we've seen. Some good. So it's, that's right. So as you join us on this conversation today, you're also a representative of the Dairy Pricing Association. Tell our listeners a little bit about that association. Okay. Well, Dairy Pricing Association got started in, in 2009 is when uh, Mayan Robinberg, a gentleman from Darlington, Wisconsin, laid the groundwork. And we, 2008, 2009, um, dairy producers had the toughest times I, I think they've ever had since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And we, we needed to come up with a way to utilize surplus dairy products. Um, I know that, you know, farmers don't like quotas. They don't like to be told how much they can produce. We don't like the government leaning over us um, in these in these ways. So um, we we devised a way to let farmers do a voluntary check off to dairy pricing, and we have taken that money and we use that money to buy surplus dairy products, um, and it all goes to humanitarian needs. And a lot of people ask, um, you know, when do you know there's a surplus? Well, as, as dairy producers, all we need to do is look at our milk check. So that's that's probably the easiest thing um, to, to accomplish to know when there's a surplus. And you watch the Chicago Mer Mercantile Exchange and you see where things are trading. Um, our, our goal would be, would be to, you know, maintain like a $20 milk price or a $2 plus cheese price at the CME. Um, when things are, are better than that, we would not be purchasing. We would just, um, you know, build a war chest, so to speak, and sit on this money and use it, um, when it's needed to be most effective in, in, um, you know, hitting, hitting our, our melt price target. So the reason, Tom, part of the reason we wanted to have you on today was to discuss the new dairy industry framework for self-regulation proposal that the Dairy Pricing Association has really focused on here and partnered with a few others on. But why did you think this framework was necessary for the dairy industry and what does it really hope to accomplish? Okay. Well, the reason the, the framework is necessary is just because we see these downward spirals that happen every so often. Um, like the one we just we just went through, um, and there's what what dairy farmers need to understand is that in the federal order system, everybody, all the milk components, your butter, fat, protein, other solids, even though we have the different federal orders, at the end of the month they all have the same prices for these components. The, the only thing that, that varies between federal orders is the producer, producer price differential or PPD. And the PPD is, is how the federal order equals out the value of the milk each month in that order. And it all depends, that all depends on how much class one or fluid milk is being utilized in that order. So Wisconsin here, order 30 upper Midwest, we have the lowest PPDs just because we have a low um, class one usage. Um, but like I say, so the, the butter, fat, protein, other solids, that's, that's the same every month across the nation. 
Um, one of the things that, that goes on um, in the industry because of the, the consolidation, um, I'll, use, I'll use cream as an example. If you're a butter plant and you're buying cream off the open market, you can pay whatever you want. There is no protection under the federal order to um, keep this, keep the price that you're paying in line with what the federal order people say that it's worth. So if you're a, if you're a cheese plant and you're selling cream, um, chances are you're not getting your, well, I know you're not getting what the federal order says it's worth and you're supposed to pay your farmers off the federal order prices. So when, when you're selling components below federal order, um, how do you maintain and, and pay your farmers what the federal order says they should be paid? And so that's that's one of the things that this this would accomplish. Um, I guess in the in the opening page here of the, the proposal, it says this proposal seeks to eliminate all undercutting in the marketplace by milk handlers and the resulting race to the bottom in farm milk prices through through reblends, market adjustments, pooling and distant federal milk marketing orders, and depooling. So as you explain some of that to the listeners that haven't been around dairy and maybe don't necessarily know how the processes have worked, is this coming to light because of more larger processors or what's causing this to become a focus? Well, this is, so what this really is, it is, it is supply management, but it is implemented by the processor. So as, as we go through this thing, um, you know, however, however long you want to visit here, um, is this is, this gives the, this, this mandate makes the processor pay all dairy producers at least the federal order minimums um, and what is set, which is set every month. But in return, the processor gets to tell their producer when they have too much milk, when something happens like it did this spring, um, that the producer has to cut back um, for whatever time frame the processor wants. It might be a month, it might be two weeks, might be two months. Um, you know, they can say two, three, four percent, you guys need to cut back. Um, that is that is the farmer's part in, in balancing the milk supply. So in, instead of the farmer balancing the processor with the dollars in his milk check, he now uses his supply of milk to balance and which in the long run will, will stabilize the price and give the farmer a, a higher price. Um, once, the, once the inventory is used up, then the, then the processor, you know, he's in, he's in position to, to let the farmers produce again and, and, and lift, the, lift whatever percentage of production that they have to dispose of. And the other thing that's, that's neat about it being implemented by the processor, if the processor says, okay, you guys have to cut back, you know, 4% for 30 days, and then something happens, maybe the processor 
maybe they have a large farm that, um, you know, has a fire or maybe there's a storm or tornadoes or whatever. Well, at that point, the processor can at any time say, hey, we're done. Um, you guys put the milk back in the truck. We need it. You know, we had a, had a bad weather event, um, lost the milk production. Um, so it's, it's really in the processor's control as to how much or how little um, milk that they, they need to be disposing of. So Tom, when you look at where we're at in the process to get this implemented, you've obviously vocalized a letter to Congress asking them to help with this process, but have you also involved processors in this discussion and where is it at in the implementation process? Okay. Yep. Well, I guess the, the, um, the whole proposal, of course, is on the dairy pricing website. Um, anybody can go on there, processors, um, farmers, consumers, they can read it. It's, it's probably a five minute read. It's, it's really short and sweet. Um, it, uh, it accomplishes a lot. I had a, um, oh, Dr. Scott Brown from the University of Missouri. Um, I introduced it to him. I introduced it to a couple gentlemen at, at UW-Madison, the egg economist, Mark Stevenson was one of them. And, you know, I wanted these guys to give me their take on this. Well, the guys from Wisconsin, um, they, they didn't really have time, I guess, or want to tackle it. Um, Scott Brown from Missouri, he looked at it and his reply was that this should get the attention of Congress in the next farm bill. So I, I guess with, I guess with that, um, you know, we waited till this summer here till the farm bill thing got, got rolling. And then, you know, we decided we would try to get, get some attention to it. So, yeah, so that's, um, that's kind of the, the process. This actually, I actually wrote this in, I believe 2017, um, 2017 or 2018, there was a seminar in Albany, New York, and they were wanting um, input, you know, on, on supply management or anything like that. So I guess that's, that's kind of how long ago I, I started on it. So perfect. Well, we appreciate you taking the time today to share with our listeners what you guys have going on, uh, speaking up for the dairy industry. So thank you again. Yep, and I guess you can urge urge your listeners to go to the dairy pricing website and look up the self-regulation proposal and they can leave comments, ask questions. If you if you have a question and about it and, and you want me to answer, go to the website um, in the comment part there, leave leave me questions, leave me comments. Um happy to happy to work with anybody that wants to look at it. With the Farm Smart Podcast, we're not just talking change, we're making change together. Farm Smart is where sustainability meets opportunity. We're helping growers leverage sustainable practices and products to record positive environmental impacts and provide new revenue streams. Tune in to learn more about sustainable ag and the opportunities and incentives that are enabling us to get to the future faster. Get the Farm Smart Podcast on your favorite streaming platform or at nutrientagsolutions.com slash farmsmart. 
listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the Farm Smart Podcast on your favorite streaming platform or visit NutrientAgSolutions.com slash FarmSmart. Also hit the subscribe button where you're listening to this podcast. We appreciate that and appreciate you being a listener. But for today, Delaney, what do you say? Should let the listeners go? Let's let them go. Thank <laughs> you.